You are Locked On Rockets, your daily Houston Rockets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Ignition sequence start. Oh, Elijah Wan has David Robinson. Just bamboozled. Kelly out of the corner for three innings. Don't ever underestimate the heart of a champion. The Houston Rockets select Yao Ming. McLeany at the buzzer. Yeah! Chris Paul puts it up. Goes to hard on Thompson. Steps right. Shoots for the win of three. He got it. I know what we need to do. I know exactly what we need to do. Russell Westbrook. James Harden. I know what's at stake. It's going to be scary. Not for us. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball. I am your host, Jackson Gatlin, at JT Gatlin on Twitter, producer with Sports Talk 790, the team's official radio flagship here in Houston. Today, we get to talk about a win, a win against the Miami Heat, and a win that matters for a whole bunch of different reasons. First of which, really mainly because the Miami Heat kind of... uh, Let's face it, they kicked the Rockets' ass the last time they played. It was the ugliest loss of the season early on. Third loss of the season in South Beach. South Beach curse, whatever you want to call it. But it was a brutal loss. Granted, that was the loss that probably kick-started the eight-game win streak. So maybe it wasn't all bad. But it feels great that you beat the Heat for that reason. It feels great that you beat them because you've been on a three-game losing streak as is. So it's nice to get a win. And then it also feels great because you got to see Gary Clark play in a basketball game, and he played well. Gary Clark played so well. It's so great, guys. Anyways, we'll get to that. We'll get to some of their... It wasn't all roses. It wasn't all sunshine lollipops. There were a few problem areas, namely the fourth quarter kind of... It wasn't quite a fourth quarter collapse, but the Heat did outscore the Rockets 40-26 to in that quarter, and they did mount a bit of a comeback, and maybe if things break a little bit more the Heat's way in that quarter, they're able to actually get back into this game, and we might not be talking about a win today. We might be talking about a loss. So there's that. There's a couple issues, some high, you know, a high turnover number from Russell Westbrook, but those are minor things. I don't want to ignore them because they still matter, but we will talk about all the good stuff first because it was overall, by and large, it was a great game. James Harden finished the game 34 points, 6 rebounds, 5 assists, had a steal, had a block, only a couple turnovers. So low turnover numbers for James Harden, which is great, and we'll get to that more in just a minute. Shot 9 of 22 from the floor, 7 of 17 from behind the arc. Incredible shooting by James, 9 of 10 at the charity stripe means he only shot the ball five times inside the arc. So a lot of his shots coming from behind the arc, and a lot of the reason for that was because the Heat opted to not mimic the instantaneous double team that we've been seeing as of late against James Harden. James was able to get into his rhythm. He was able to isolate. He was able to go one-on-one. Now, the Heat did double-team him at times, but it was not as aggressive as a double-team as we saw from the Nuggets, from the Clippers, and from the Mavericks, where the moment he crossed half court, he was getting double teamed. So that allowed James to get into his rhythm. It allowed him to play his brand of basketball. And 
it looked like a great game from James Harden. You know, one of the games that we're accustomed to seeing, and he didn't look nearly as pressured or under duress as we've seen during that three-game losing streak, mainly because he was able to, again, get to his spots. He was able to play that he the way that he wanted to play. He was able to get to those slots and, you know, shoot his step-back threes. And, again, the defense did not pressure James Harden the way that they have been the last three games. Westbrook had a great game in his own right, 27 points, 9 rebounds, 7 assists, so few stats shy of another triple-double. Did have 2 steals to go along with 11 of 21 shooting, 0 of 2 from behind the arc, but I did like that he only attempted 2 threes. That's that's good. 2 to 3 three-point attempts per game from Westbrook. Honestly, I'd be happy if he never attempted another 3 in his life because that means that he's driving the ball in. That means that he's passing up on three-pointers to get other shooters a chance to shoot the ball. I love that. Overall, he had another one of those games where he basically turned into Chris Paul. And the thing is, is we can joke about it. We can joke and say, oh, well, you know, maybe if we hadn't traded Chris Paul, Chris could be draining all those shots. Fact of the matter is Chris can't get those shots anymore or it's very hard for him to get those shots. When Westbrook shoots those mid-range jumpers, he's elevating over his defender. He's got the quick stutter step, he's got the elevation, and that's why he's able to even attempt those shots these days. Chris Paul wouldn't be shooting the same level or the same number of mid-range jumpers in this game that Westbrook did simply because he just can't get open that way anymore. He has to actually actively work to shake his defender quite a bit more. He's smaller than Westbrook, not as athletic as Westbrook, can't elevate as high. So Westbrook shot the ball, I don't know, probably about 10 times from mid-range. I'm just looking at the basic stat page. But overall, Westbrook shot the ball a fair bit from mid-range in the Heat game, and Chris Paul wouldn't have probably attempted half of those shots, honestly. So, great game from Westbrook. Bit of a caveat because a great game from mid-range from Westbrook means that he might continue to shoot volume numbers from mid-range, and so the next one or two games we might have, you know, a couple stinkers from him where he goes one for seven or two for eight from mid-range instead of going six for eight or seven for nine or whatever it was in tonight's game or in this uh, in the Heat game. But overall, you take what you get. Westbrook had a great game, so kudos to him. Did have nine turnovers, though. And that's a bit concerning. It's concerning on an individual level, but on a team, team-wide team scale, it's not that big of a deal. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Daniel House Jr. had an amazing game. 23 points, 4 rebounds, 2 assists, 2 steals. Great defense, as always. Lights out shooting, 4 of 8 from behind the arc, 7 of 11 overall, 5 of 7 from the charity stripe. And he got into it a bit at the very end with Goran Dragic because it was basically end of regulation. Daniel House pump faked for a 3, drove it in, and Dragic rotated over. And as Daniel elevated to try and get the shot off near the paint, Dragic kind of gave him a double forearm shove directly into House's injured shoulder, which... Look, I don't know if Drogic was attempting to be dirty necessarily with that play. Maybe he would have attempted the exact same double forearm shove if it was James Harden or Westbrook. You know, maybe it would have been the exact same. But it just so happened to be the guy, the player on the Rockets, who had a shoulder injury on that specific left shoulder. And so Daniel House took exception to that, got immediately in the face of Goran Drogic. He walked away. You know, the teams were separated. House was charged with a technical Drogic was charged with a flagrant one, and that was that. House said after the game to Jonathan Fagan that he'll be fine, he'll be okay for practice 
on Friday today. And so everything should be okay there. House is a trooper, but he's also not somebody that I would personally want to mess with. He's on that level of Gerald Green where he's probably not going to take crap from anybody. And unfortunately, we don't have Gerald Green out there to back up D House with the greenhouse effect. But Daniel House is not about to take that from anybody, and he took exception to that, voices, voiced his frustrations, and that was that. But I'm happy it's nothing serious. Again, I don't know if it was intentionally a dirty play by Drajic, but we'll move on from that. And the last guy, the man of the hour, Gary freaking Clark. Played a, game, played a bench high 29 minutes, had 12 points, 8 rebounds, one assist, one steal, one block, five of ten shooting overall, two of six from behind the arc, was a plus seven across the game. Gary had a phenomenal game, and we'll get more on that in just one moment. All right, and we are back here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball, talking about the Rockets 117-108 win over the Miami Heat, the revenge game, if you will. Now, a quick segue, didn't mention it in the first segment, probably should have, but Clint Capella and Jimmy Butler did not play in this game. Now, does that make this game any less important? Not really. Is Jimmy Butler a better player than Clint Capella? Yes, you can make that argument. So were the Heat a bit more shorthanded than the Rockets? Sure, but the Rockets are also still missing Eric Gordon. They're still figuring out things with their rotation, unlocking the potential of the GOAT Gary Clark. No, I kid. But seriously, this game still matters because even though the two teams were missing, you know, the Rockets missing their starting center and Clint Capella, the Heat missing their go-to guy and new you know, number one option in Jimmy Butler, these are two still very good teams. The Heat came into the matchup at 12-4, and the second best record in the East. They've been playing some great basketball, one of the top defenses in the league, and so does having Jimmy Butler change things? Sure. But would having Clint Capella have changed things? Absolutely. But here's the thing is because you didn't have Clint Capella, you got to see Gary Clark play. And Gary Clark had a great game. I said it on social media right after the game, but the effect that Gary Clark has is he gives you that third wing or that third four slash five or three four slash five because Gary can play the three. He gives you that third guy that the Rockets have been sorely missing since they lost the trio of Trevor Ariza, P.J. Tucker, and Luke Bamute. Obviously, Tucker's still here, but you can't play Tucker 48 minutes a game. And you also can't really play him close to 40 minutes a game and put him on the opposing best player every moment that he's on the court and not expect him to wear down over time or lose effectiveness. So having a trio of wings that are reliable defenders, good three-point shooters, can hustle, are athletic, or some varying degree of all these things, having that trio in that 17-18 season between Ariza, Bamute, and Tucker was phenomenal for the Rockets because you could essentially always have two of those three guys on the court. And then regrettably, Bamute gets injured at the very end of the season, is basically useless all of the postseason, so then you're cut down to just Ariza and Tucker. And at that point, Tucker had taken over the starting role. So we really didn't get to see what it would have looked like in that playoff series. Bamute would have been phenomenal to have in that Golden State Warriors series, but now you've got the opportunity after last season with some of these 
kind of margin candidates, on the margin candidates like Michael Carter Williams, Carmelo Anthony, you didn't have a third, you didn't really even have a second true 3 and D wing because you tried to start the season with James Ennis. And again, this is kind of one of those cheaper candidates that was available and kind of on the margin quality players, and it just didn't work out with Ennis. So now you've got P.J. Tucker, you've got Daniel House, who has developed into a starting caliber forward who has developed his shooting, he, he's playing amazing defense, and then you're looking for a third guy to pair along with those guys. And this is the first game this season where, where sorry, not Daniel House, where Gary Clark has gotten extended minutes, and he showed that he's capable of being that guy. He provides you defense. He provides you length. He gives you reliable shooting. It's not Maybe it's not going to be as consistent as Daniel House or as P.J. Tucker, but when you're a bench player, it doesn't need to be that good. What he needs to give you is he needs to give you dynamic length, defense, hustle, and he plays smart basketball. There were times last night where, I say last night, sorry, Wednesday night. There were times Wednesday evening, as I record this on a very early Friday morning, there were times Wednesday evening against the Heat where Gary would make a backdoor cut and Westbrook was able to find him midair as Westbrook was elevating for a jumper. Gary Clark cut to the basket, received a pass from Westbrook, dunked it. Easy. There was another time... Gary kicked the ball back out to James Harden. James attempts a step back three, airballs it, and Gary Clark is right there below the basket to receive the the James was credited with an assist on this, but it shouldn't have been. Should have been an airball. Anyways, Gary was credited. Gary grabbed the ball, went up with it, scored the bucket. James got an assist, and that was that. So Gary plays the game the right way. He's from, you know, he's from Cincinnati. That's where he went to college. It's a great system down there. He came into the league as a defensive-minded player. And he also came into the league very skinny, not that great of a shooter, and he's worked on both of those things quite a bit. You can tell just by looking at Gary that he has added quite a bit of muscle to his frame, and he's a lot, you know, a lot bigger, a lot sturdier than he used to be, a lot stronger, so that he can go up against some of those, some of the fives if he were to play a small ball five position for the Rockets, which he did last night. He played at the five spot. I keep saying last night. Anyways, against the Heat, he did play that small ball five spot quite a bit. And overall, the biggest fear that I have is that Mike D'Antoni will do exactly what he did after the Minnesota Timberwolves game, where both Chris Clemens and Isaiah Hartenstein both had great games, showed that they are capable of being rotation pieces. Now, does, does that mean... Isaiah Hartenstein was going to go out and get 16 boards every night after the T-Wolves game? No. Does that mean Chris Clemens is going to go out and score almost 20 points a night after the T-Wolves game? No. But seeing those guys do that in one game at the NBA level shows that they are capable of doing that, maybe not on a consistent basis, but they can probably go out there and get you some points or get you some rebounds. And the fact that D'Antoni immediately after that game chose to just sideline them again, put them down in, just banish them to the end of the bench, is frustrating, and I just hope that after a phenomenal game, <clears throat> pardon me, and I just hope that after a phenomenal game like this from Gary Clark, that D'Antoni doesn't just get Capella back, throw Capella back into the starting lineup, and then go back to running a ridiculous seven-man rotation with McLemore and Rivers getting the majority of bench minutes, and then Gary being stuck at the end of the bench again, because he gives you what you need. You need some level of size at the end of your bench. 
And it's not, I'm not talking about size like throw in Tyson Chandler. We're not talking about that kind of size. We're talking about the fact that everybody that isn't a center for the Rockets is 6'6 and under. If you're a center for the Rockets, you're Capella, you're 6'10, Chandler 7'1, 7'2, whatever he is. Nene hasn't even suited up and won't probably suit up this season at all, but so he's kind of beyond the point. But past that, you've got Tucker, 6'5, House, 6'6, Harden, 6'5, Westbrook, 6'3. There's nobody with any height or length on this team besides your two centers. And so having Gary be able to come in and play the backup four spot to P.J. Tucker and maybe trim his minutes down a little bit, again, as he's 34 years old, getting a bit long in the tooth, really probably shouldn't be playing almost 40 minutes a night like he has been consistently. You can have him as your backup four. He provides you the same things that P.J. Tucker does in the sense of defense, stretches the floor. You can park him in the corner and tell him, hey, it's your job. Just hit these corner threes. And then on top of that, you can also factor him in as a backup five. He can play a small ball five on the nights where you're not planning to play Tyson Chandler or maybe where the matchup is not favorable for Tyson Chandler simply because Chandler is more of an older traditional center, not as quick as he used to be. And if you're playing against another five that is a stretch five sitting out there on the three-point line, you really don't want Tyson Chandler to be dragged out of the paint to have to go deal with that. That doesn't. That does not fit Tyson's strengths, and we've seen him struggle with that. Where either he gets parked on a switch, and then he's left on an island against a guard or another forward, or even when he has to go out there on the three-point line and deal with other fives that are shooting the basketball from distance, which is very common in today's NBA. Suddenly, he loses his effectiveness because if he's not able to just park himself in or near the paint, then Tyson's not going to do much for you. His intimidation factor just by existing on the court being in the paint is huge in the game against the heat he only had one point and one rebound but his presence was just felt just by being down there near the paint being able to box out doing the little things that he does is huge again he only played eight minutes but he started he started the first quarter and then he started the uh third quarter and that was that. That's really all they needed. He played about you know four minutes at the top of each half, and that was that. And Isaiah Hartenstein did get some burn in the game, didn't have a phenomenal game. And again, part of that comes from Mike D'Antoni seeing what Gary Clark provided and let Gary play the entire second quarter. Hartenstein finished up the first quarter, and then Gary played the entire second quarter. And then same thing, basically, in the second half. Isaiah Hartenstein kind of wrapped up the third quarter, and then Gary played basically the tail end of the game, more or less. So overall, great things seen from Gary Clark, and the fear is just that Mike D'Antoni may not continue to capitalize on this. He did say post-game that Gary has a chance to break into the rotation, but said something along the lines of, you know, anybody can do this for one or two games, but can you do it over six months? That's the thing that we need to see is can you consistently bring it over a six-month period or something to that effect. And that's a bit concerning because it's not like Gary's had the chance to bring it. So maybe there's something going on behind the scenes that not even the media is aware of as far as maybe there's just some type of a issue with their relationship there between Mike D'Antoni and Gary Clark. Gary's obviously been a bit in the doghouse. But we saw early last season that Gary Clark can be useful and he's put in a lot of work down there in the in the G League alongside Isaiah Hartenstein to get to the point where they're too good to be playing in the G League. Chris Clemens, Isaiah Hartenstein, and Gary Clark are too good to be playing in the G League, but they're also not quite 
exactly where you would want them to be at to be considered NBA-level rotational players? I think Gary probably is. For as much as we've been boosting this guy up over the last weeks and months on Twitter and social media and whatnot, Gary is an NBA-quality rotation player, but he does have youthful moments where he makes those youthful mistakes like the what immediately jumps to mind is the and one on Tyler Harrow, I want to say at the end of the third quarter. And you could tell immediately Gary knew that he had messed up. He he bit on a pump fake, jumped in the air, and then immediately pulled his arms down and tried to prevent the foul. But Tyler Harrow played it smart, jumped into Gary Clark, made the shot, which we originally thought was going to be a three-pointer. And then upon further review, referees ruled it a two-pointer, thank goodness. But you could tell in that moment he realized he messed up and he he immediately saw his his playing time flash before his eyes. He thought he was going to get benched immediately. And that was one of those moments where it's just, he's a, he's not a rookie, but he's a young player and he does have to be aware that any mistake that he makes is immediately magnified because it's, they're looking at it under a microscope. And if he's making mistakes like that consistently, then yes, his playing time will probably get cut, but it's kind of a double-edged sword because you have to allow young players like that to have the chance to make those mistakes and have the chance to get out there and actually work out some of the kinks in their game for them to not make those mistakes. You can't just have him execute over and over again in practice or execute down there in the G League and expect it to feel the same as an NBA-level game. And then you can look at plenty of different teams that are doing this. Miami is doing this with their rookies. Tyler Harrow is a rookie, and he's getting substantial minutes. Now, can you, is Tyler Harrow a better player than Gary Clark? Yes. We'll just go ahead and put that put that out there right now. So it's different, yes, when you're a rookie with a huge level of talent compared to a second or third year player like Gary Clark who's had to kind of work himself into that position. But even you can look at the Golden State Warriors back when they first drafted Jordan Bell. Jordan Bell was an integral part of that team as a rookie. And it all comes down to, is the coach willing to trust his young players and actually give them a chance to shine and grow and flourish? And I think that Gary gives you everything that this Rockets team desperately needs out of its eighth or ninth rotational player off the bench. And it's all up to Mike D'Antoni to actually let him have a chance to shine, to actually give him minutes on the court, and to plug him into the rotation and just let him grow, let him learn. You're going you're gonna to deal with the mistakes. If Gary makes mistakes on the court, then you're just going to have to deal with them. But it'd be the same as if Macklemore turned the ball over, or it'd be the same if Rivers committed a two-point and one foul. It doesn't matter. Somebody else is probably going to make that same mistake on the court, and I don't think you can necessarily fault Gary for it just because he's younger than everybody else. We'll continue breaking down the game in just a moment, but first, a quick message from our friends over at Audible. Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and audio entertainment. You can start listening with a 30-day Audible trial. Choose one audiobook and two Audible originals absolutely free. Visit audible.com slash LockedOnMBA. Now, if you're listening on the go and you can't visit Audible right now, you can find this and all other offers from Locked On sponsors at LockedOnPodcast.com slash offers. All right, last segment here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball. Now, I did say that we would get to some not-so-great stuff about this game. And part of that is because, look, just because it's a win doesn't mean that we want to sit here and ignore all of the or the minor bad things that happened. And same thing, just because 
the Rockets lose a game. They've been on a three-game losing streak. That doesn't mean we're only going to sit here and highlight the negatives from those games. Because you can have some good within the bad, or you can have some bad within the good. And we saw a little bit of that against the Heat. So the couple points that I want to make in this segment, first of which, Russell Westbrook, and this has been something that we've seen quite a bit from him, is he's been a bit sloppy with the basketball. He turned the ball over nine times against the Heat. Now, that's concerning on an individual level because that means that Russell Westbrook turned the ball over nine times in one game. He was shooting for a quadruple-double in his own right or potentially just a triple-double with points, rebounds, and turnovers. Anyways, the point being, that's an, that's an absurd number to turn the ball over, and that's nine turnovers. It's a bit ridiculous. You want to see him cut that number down, and I, I've had some, I've seen some OKC Thunder fans on Twitter who have, it's kind of a weird dynamic now because you've got a lot of Thunder fans who are cheering for the Rockets because they're maybe not necessarily, I guess they're technically Westbrook fans, and so they've kind of migrated over from the Thunder fandom, and now they're cheering for the Rockets, but they also still cheer for the Thunder. It's just kind of a weird dynamic, and so somebody, one of those weird Thunder fans was talking about it on Twitter that he didn't remember Westbrook having such a loose handle in previous years and that suddenly that it started not this year, but last year. So last year was the first year that it started where Westbrook suddenly just didn't have as tight a grip on the ball. His handle was a bit more loose, a lot more turnovers. And so not quite sure exactly what happened there. I'm glad to know that it's not necessarily like a Rockets only issue that he didn't just suddenly don a Houston Jersey and then forget how to dribble the basketball or pass the basketball. But it sounds like this is something that's been going on since early last season. And so I wanted to attribute it to the dislocated fingers. Maybe he's just playing it too rapid of a pace, something of that nature. But it sounds like it's not a brand new issue. So that is a bit concerning there. Not sure exactly what can be done other than, because it's hard to say, hey, Westbrook, can you slow down a little bit? (laughs) I feel like you'd get a response from, like the Carmelo Anthony response talking about when he wanted to come off the bench. Hey, P, they want me to come off the bench. Like, I feel like you get Westbrook saying, hey, James, they want me to slow down a little bit. Like, come on. Like, how are you going to tell Russell Westbrook to slow down? That's not that's not what you do with Russell Westbrook. You just kind of let him go at his speed and hope that everybody else can stay with him. Anyways, the Westbrook turnovers are a big concern. However... They're not a big concern because on an individual level, yes, you don't want Westbrook turning the ball over nine times in one game. Looking at it from a team angle, though, the benefit that the Rockets have compared to other teams is that only two guys handle the ball the majority of the game, and that's James Harden and Russell Westbrook. So as long as those two guys only combine for roughly, let's say, 13 to 15 turnovers per game, and then everybody else does their job of simply just not turning the ball over, then the Rockets are still going to be in the top 10, top 15 in the league as far as turnovers are concerned. Because again, you've got roughly two guys, James Harden and Russell Westbrook, who are bound to turn the ball over probably four to six times a game each, simply because of how often they have the ball in their hands. Whereas another team that doesn't rely on simply two ball handlers to orchestrate the entire offense for all 48 minutes... They might have a smattering of turnovers spread around all 12 of their guys. You might have two turnovers here, four here, three here, whatever. 
it's actually pretty nice for the Rockets because as a, on a whole, as a whole team, Westbrook had nine, sure. The rest of the team only had six. So you're looking at 15 turnovers. So on an individual level, yeah, it looks really bad because you look at Russell Westbrook and you're like, okay, he had nine turnovers. That's a horrible game. But then you look at the team and the team only had 15. So it doesn't really matter necessarily that Westbrook had those nine. And I will say that I think in the Heat game, Westbrook was handling the ball a bit more than usual. It felt like the ball was out of James Harden's hands quite a bit more than it had been in recent games. And I don't know if this is just my eye test betraying me, but it really did feel like Westbrook was handling the ball quite a bit more even when James was in the game, not just in the Russ-only lineups. It felt like Westbrook handled the ball quite a bit more, was pushing the ball in transition. A lot of times, you know, there'd be a rebound and it would go straight to Russ and he would just take off with it. Or even times there, James would get the rebound and then pass it forward to Russ. So it felt like he handled the ball quite a bit more, which lends itself to, yeah, if he's handling the ball more than usual, he's probably going to have more, t- more turnovers than usual. So it's kind of a two-part thing. You'd like to see Russ cut back on those turnovers because it would have been great if the Rockets had only had 10 turnovers last night and Russ walked away with only four. That would have been phenomenal. But on the grand scale, looking at it from a team thing, 15 turnovers is not bad. The Rockets have actually been pretty good about taking care of the ball this season, and that was one of the main concerns for me, especially coming in, was the addition of Russell Westbrook and the subtraction of Chris Paul. Chris Paul knows how to take care of the basketball. Chris Paul has one of the greatest assist-to-turnover ratios in history, and he is called the point god for a reason. He's not going to walk out there and turn the ball over every other play. He's not going to make careless passes. He's not going to make the wrong read or get caught for you know two to three offensive fouls per game, whatever. Chris Paul takes care of the basketball. And so swapping Paul out for Westbrook, who's a bit more chaotic, a bit more loose, things of that nature— it, List kind of, you know, like a runaway train on the court. Westbrook has actually done a decent job of keeping his turnovers down for the most part this year. It's just this one game looked really bad, but I wanted to highlight that so that people didn't just look at the box score and just go, oh, Westbrook had nine turnovers. He's horrible because that's not how it works. He has the ball more than anybody except for maybe James on the team. And even James has games where he has a ridiculously high turnover rate. And that's just bound to happen. LeBron has it too. Giannis has it too. Guys who handle the ball more than anybody else on the team are bound to turn the ball over more. So it's just about limiting those opportunities and ideally limiting them to dead ball turnovers. Like an offensive foul, that's fine. Because it resets everything. You get your half-court defense back. You're not guarding in transition or anything. So that's totally fine. But a live ball turnover where Westbrook just throws the ball into the chest of somebody else like on the Miami Heat, then those those really burn you because then that gives a chance the, that gives the Heat a chance to get out in transition, to go score an easy bucket, things of that nature. Now the other thing that I wanted to highlight was the fourth quarter collapse. And it really was a fourth quarter collapse because Miami finished the quarter winning the fourth quarter 40 to 26. So that was a bit painful to watch especially with how well they played in the first half. I mean, the Rockets held the Heat to 42 points in the first half. Their defense was something else in that half. And then in the second half, they gave up 26 in the third and then 40 in the fourth. And this is one of those moments where you look at this Rockets team and they've done it before. They ease up on the gas. They take their foot off the gas pedal just a bit and they let the other team kind of claw their way back into the game. They're not that great at putting teams away. 
And that's one area that I would love for them to improve on is to just have that killer instinct to really just put a team away rather than giving them a chance to go on these, you know, 8-0 run, 10-0 run, whatever it may be to, to claw their way back into, you know, from a 20-point deficit, suddenly they have it into the single digits. That 117-108 final score does not really portray how the entire game went because the Rockets blew this game open in the second quarter. I want to say it started with a... It was a 13-2 run. I think it was 40-27 to at one point. So the Rockets, they started the quarter 20, sorry, 27-23 to was the start of the second quarter. And then the Rockets went on a 13-2 run because at one point the score was 40-25. to And that was in large part due to Gary Clark. I'm going to give him lots of credit because Gary checked in at the top of the second and that's when the run started. So we're going to give Gary a fair bit of credit there, especially because he did have a dunk and a three-pointer as part of that 13-0 or 13-2 run. But they dominated that second quarter. They played great defense. That third quarter was pretty solid. It was kind of a wash, 26-25 in favor of the Heat. But that fourth quarter, they let up on the gas. They let the Heat get back into the game. And it's not like it's because they checked out James Harden and Russell Westbrook with three or four minutes to go in the quarter. No, 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 that wasn't it. Harden and Westbrook checked out with like a minute left. So it was just kind of a bad quarter overall from the Rockets. They were giving up some easy looks. They weren't defending with the same intensity that they defended the first three quarters with. And that's, at the end of the day, even Elson Turner, Rockets' defensive assistant coach, has been saying this. He wants consistency from this team. Because this team has shown windows where they can be dominant. They've shown windows where they can be maybe even a top five defensive team. They've When they want to, they can put the clamps on and prevent and absolutely shut down opposing teams from scoring. But it's about being honed in and locked in on every single possession. It's about giving the extra effort every single time down the court on that end. And that's not something we've seen yet. We haven't seen that level of consistency. And hopefully they work their way towards that level of consist- consistency because this team has the talent. This team is going to finish the, the year as a top three offensive team. I don't think there's any question about that. This team is going to be one of the most potent teams offensively by the end of the season. But you have to get there with defense too. Because if you want to be a contender in this league, ideally you got to be top 10 in both categories. And so the Rockets are going to be top three offensively. So it's about striving to work your way towards that end of the spectrum and get near the top 10 or break into the top 10. And I said it earlier, and I'll say it again, factoring Gary in there, watching the way that he played defense, watching the rebounds that he was able to secure, the length that he gives you to contest shots. Tyler Harrow missed a fast break layup simply because Gary has long arms. And that's incredible. That's not something we could say about anybody else on the Rockets except for Clint Capella or Tyson Chandler. And Gary had the speed to keep up with Harrow as he drove towards the basket and contest that shot. Harrow had to toss the ball way up higher on the glass than he normally does to try and make the layup simply because Gary Clark has long arms. So you factor in Gary Clark and hopefully an increase in playing time for him. You factor in getting back Eric Gordon, who will not only help your offense, but Eric Gordon's he's a, he is a at least average defender, maybe even a plus defender at times when he's really locked in on that end of the court. So you factor in those two guys, I think this team could break top 10 in defense. I really do. But it's about the desire to want to do that every game, even against bad opponents. It's about wanting to go out there and give it your all every possession so that way 
come the end of the season, you're not kicking yourself for losses that shouldn't have occurred. You're not looking back and you're like, oh man, I really wish we would have won that one game. Really wish we would have tried a little bit harder on that one possession. You know, we played bad defense in the second half and we should have won that game. Not having to look back on losses like that or games that came down to the wire for that reason because you just weren't locked in defensively because you're going to miss shots. This We already know with this team, you're going to miss some shots. That's just that's just how the three-point shot works. There's a high level of variance. Some games you're going to shoot 25%. Other games you're going to shoot 50% from behind the arc. And then for the most part, yeah, you'll shoot your average. But sometimes you're going to shoot under that and sometimes you're going to shoot over that. So on the games where you're shooting 20 to 25% from behind the arc and the shot just isn't there, you've got to be able to rely on your defense. And the defensive-minded teams in the league know that. They know that they can't rely on their offense, so they pride themselves on their defense. And the Rockets are never going to be a defensive-minded team, but if they put in the good-faith effort on that end of the basketball court every night, they're going to be a burden to any team that they play against. So for this Friday morning... November 29th, very early Friday morning episode. This is where we will break things. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Now, if you want more content before our next show, social media is where it's all happening. I'm on there, at JT Gatlin, and of course, the show is on there, at Locked on Rockets. Past that, there's Facebook, which can be found at facebook.com slash lockedonrockets, the website, lockedonrockets.com, and of course, our email address, lockedonrockets at gmail.com. All of these are different ways to consume content about the Houston Rockets. You can ask me questions about the team, make suggestions for the show. You can place advertising inquiries. Really, it's just a way for you to reach out and let us know if there's anything that we can do to improve this experience for you, our listeners. Beyond that, if you'd be kind enough to subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya, wherever it is that you listen to your podcast, if you could please subscribe and give us a five-star review. That's how you get the benefit of episodes that go straight to your inbox before they show up on the previously mentioned social media channels, and then we get the benefit of looking attractive to potential advertisers and keeping this business model rolling along as the most regular podcast covering Houston Rockets basketball. Again, for this very early Friday, November 29th episode, this is where we break. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to have you back again very, very soon right here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball.